Lee Norman was prepared for the possibility that a new and deadly virus could induce a global pandemic long before many people were familiar with the threat that became known as COVID-19. But he was caught off guard by the governor's decision to fire him as secretary of the Kansas Department for Health and Environment in November after managing the state's response to the pandemic for nearly two years. I sat down with Norman in his Kansas City, Missouri loft to talk about his leadership of the health agency, attacks on science, his departure from state government, and what he plans to do next. Yeah, let's start off by taking us back to the, the early days of this, and when did you first take notice of this novel coronavirus, the reports coming out of China? You know, ironically, you and I are having this discussion today, and it was exactly two years ago today that I was in Puerto Rico speaking to the Council of State Governments, and the topic was modern-day epidemics and why we have them. So that was December 7th of 2019. So hadn't been talked about widely, hadn't been any cases in the United States. My fifth slide in that discussion was of a scientist holding a bat, hmm. and the title of the article was a MERS and SARS-like virus has been found in Myanmar, which is obviously an Asian country. Uh, subsequently, of course, it's been found out that that quite possibly was uh, what eventually became known as COVID-19. And even then, ironically, I gave the talk uh, on how vulnerable we were for um, epidemics, pandemics, then there were breakout sessions with legislators from all over the country. And even at that session, there was some, a couple of legislators that said to me, aren't you out just stirring the pot and making people nervous and fear-mongering, essentially, is what they said. So we've been concerned about this a long time. I think overall we were a little concerned, or a little surprised, actually, that it was a coronavirus uh, that was the one that caused this pandemic. But this is not a new concern. I had just come back from the Middle East where I'd been in deployment, had seen firsthand the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which is a novel coronavirus. There's still no uh, vaccine for it, and it's highly lethal. And it's not only in the Arabian Peninsula, but it's also in South Korea. So we know that it can spread. And, uh, and then, of course, our experience with SARS, the one the first time around was quite deep. So this was not a great surprise. We set up incident command in Kansas uh, before the first case even arrived because we saw on the horizon line that there could be a problem with this one because reports were starting to emanate primarily out of China. And we knew early on as well that not only were there cases coming out of China and probably other Asian and maybe even European countries, but that there was asymptomatic spread. And it was only an occasional uh, case study here and there that was being discussed early on, December, January of 20, December 19, January 2020. But that whole specter of asymptomatic spread of a virus is uh, daunting. So we summary is we we kind of had a pretty good idea this could be a problem, and we've been at it ever since. Yeah, it, it seemed to spread more quickly and more silently than, than people realized. We had recently a, a uh, physician went back and I guess looking at symptoms and, and notes, uh, diagnosed a, a death from early January in Leavenworth County, uh, attributed that to COVID-19, which would actually be the, the first known death from the virus in the United States. Uh, and I, I think there's some speculation as to whether that 
that really was a COVID-19 case, but it, it does raise the, the question of when, when this virus was first circulating in, in the Midwest and, and when it really would have first reached the state. I don't think we'll ever really know that, and I, I'm not one given to speculation, um, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the, that there were circulating cases before the ones that had been identified as, for example, that case up in Washington State, which was the first identified case. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I, I don't think we have any way of necessarily going back. The reason being that some of the COVID-19 symptoms uh, can also occur with other viruses. For example, uh, people can lose their sense of taste and smell from other viral infections as well. So that's not a, 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 an open-shut case that somebody that died at an earlier time died of a viral illness or a viral pneumonia and had lost their sense of smell and taste. I don't think that that's a door slammer in terms of being able to say that. It was first detected here in early March. I, I remember getting called into a news conference uh, in with the governor and, and with you and on a Saturday afternoon, I believe, when it was first detected. But I think there's maybe some, I guess, anecdotal evidence that something was going on already because we had, I think, an abnormally uh, high number of flu cases leading up to that. And you know, I just wonder if there there could have been you know, more efforts taken initially to, to find out how widespread the virus was. Yeah, we were hampered by not being able to test everybody we wanted to test. You remember uh, that the really the first year of this pandemic, once identified, was a story of shortages. Mm -hmm. Remember, we had shortages of PPE, but shortage of testing platforms and testing reagents. Remember also that influenza is not a reportable disease. Influenza death is reportable, but influenza cases are not a reportable disease. So cases. And it's, it's possible um, that cases of what were thought to be influenza could have been COVID-19 before we had the ability to do widespread testing. And that hampered us for the first six months, mm. or even more, the ability to do widespread testing because of the shortages. You know, I, I struggle sometimes to think about the, the historical significance of those early days and weeks of the pandemic. I, I was. Uh, I was a reporter for the Topeka Capital Journal at that time um, before moving over to, to launch Kansas Reflector later in, in 2020. But I remember, you know, there's just the first few months, it was 24-7, you know, around the clock, um, Tim Carpenter and I uh, working together just to try to document everything that was happening. I remember going to a news conference early on uh, with you over at um, the, the Kansas Department for Health and Environment. And I think you started by saying something like, we, well, I don't really have anything new to report today because uh, you were doing daily updates at that time. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've reached a point where if we don't get any more PPE in the next, uh, you know, 48 hours, we'll be completely out. We had to airlift uh, some, some Kansans off a ship at sea. Uh, this many more people died. This is happening. This is happening. This, you know. You know, rattle off seven things that uh, would have been like the biggest news story of the past five years if any one of those and I remember thinking like this is kind of a significant moment mm -hmm. here I, I just wonder what it was what it must have been like for for you and, and your staff your agency trying to, to handle all of this yeah it was really drinking from a fire hose in terms of information coming in as quickly as we could process it um, I think that uh, one of the things that we did early on was that we looked at the different lines of effort um, having just come back from a deployment operation in the combat region, we had lines of effort. And 
Uh, obviously, fighting a virus is different than fighting a, an enemy. But line of effort uh, was things like PPE, testing and testing reagents, public information and communication, schools, best practices. So we tried to always parse it out and say, how can we take this in bytes and then assimilate it in our incident command? And I think we were as effective and efficient at it as we could be, given the paucity of information. And throughout these last 100 weeks, give or take, of incident command, one of the things that was our driving goal was we will tell people what we know, and but to stay tuned because we're going to find something more tomorrow and a week from tomorrow and a year from tomorrow. And it's, it's a philosophy that I've had, which is just because we, everything isn't packaged up in, in, in prime time ready to go as the final, final word, we weren't going to have a final, final word for a long time. Hence the word novel coronavirus. Because if you take routine problem and apply routine solutions to it, you'll probably do okay. If you take a novel problem, and everything was novel about this, mm. and apply the routine solutions, let's go to the closet and get out the PPE, how hard can that be? You cannot apply routine solutions to novel problems. It takes novel solutions. So from the very beginning, we said, what are novel approaches that we have to do out-of-the-box thinking for? and particularly when we aligned with KDEM, Kansas Division of Emergency Management, which by the way, stellar, stellar performance through all this. Um, we had to think uh, out of the box because of the things that normally we wouldn't ever have to think about. And let me give you a couple examples. Mm -hmm. One is congregate and non-congregate housing. When you identify a case and they have to be isolated and quarantined but they don't have anywhere to go, then we would um, had ho hotels, motels, et cetera, that KDEM would arrange for where people could go and be checked in on, be, be uh, fed and watered, and so they could safely quarantine without having to go out to get that stuff and infect other people. This uh, involved using the, the National Guard, right? Yeah, to, yeah. So that's National Guard and, and other KDEM resources and contracting and the like. Another one was food. It, it went it almost unnoticed that there were millions of meals pushed out, especially during the school closures, millions of meals pushed out uh, during this period of time because people didn't have food. Who would think that a, in a pandemic that you would have to struggle with something you would think would be as fundamental as food, but you have to. And millions of meals later, um, before people could somewhat resume more towards normal activity, those things, they don't happen easily. So it takes a lot of coordination. This was a time when a lot of people had lost their their jobs for the the foreseeable future. So it's you know, and you couldn't even go to a restaurant at that time, uh, even if you could afford to. So I, you know, that was a critical component. And then I think about the not having enough personal protective equipment. It seemed so surreal to me. There was a period where you were running face masks under UV light to to try to sterilize them so they could be reused again. Like, how do you deliver this message to to somebody in doing healthcare work that I, we can't protect you, but we need you to protect everybody else. Right, that's a tough one. And you know, Sherman, my life has been in hospitals, you know, 26 years, chief medical officer, so the senior physician, both at Swedish Health System up in Seattle, and of course at KU Health System for a long time. So I know that the, the lifeblood and the pulse of 
hospitals, small, medium, and large. And it is asking a lot. For example, no matter what you say about UV light or uh, hydrogen peroxide sterilization of masks, people look at a mask that's been on some other face mm -hmm. and separate from how well, kind of the question, how well does that process work is just the aesthetics of do I really want to put a mask on that somebody else has already worn before. So we worked really hard. Matter of fact, the National Guard was very helpful. We brought people aboard. I brought in a surgeon that's, a, uh, that's in our guard unit, um, and he did mask testing because there were masks available coming in from Asia that were just, I half-jokingly but not really, said they wouldn't even make good coffee filters, let alone good uh, masks to prevent infection. We had other people that looked at novel approaches like, we don't have enough ventilators. Can we turn breast pumps into ventilators? That's kind of a, something you don't think about every day. And right. the answer is, yeah, you can. <laughs> uh, we, probably the, one of the things I worried about early on more than anything else, and I worked a lot with our Adjutant General, uh, General Taffanelli and the Army Corps of Engineer, and again, some of uh, my critical care nurses that were uh, guard, uh, Air and Army Guard personnel, came in to say, how many hospital beds are we going to need in the state of Kansas? or state of Kansas and Kansas Metro, because it blends over there. And that probably early on was the number one thing I worried about, was I hope that we have figured it right, and, and, it, and subsequently we have found out, and it's been reaffirmed again, we did it right, because we could have taken millions, tens of millions of dollars, and said, let's go to a college dorm and convert it into hospitals. But we said, and what our determination was, we aren't going to run short on hospital beds, probably, we're going to run short on staff. So to your point, if people are voting with their feet because they don't have good PPE, and we had lots of staff that were going home and, and were living in their garages or their basements because they did not feel safe. And this is, we're talking weeks on end. We're not talking about a day here and a day there. So PPE, we looked to source it everywhere we could. It was selling at the top of the market, and a lot of it was just garbage. Kind of speaks to how unfocused, I guess I would say, the the federal response was Absolutely. there wasn't much direction or preparation it felt like you know one of the things that I think about it and I thought about it every day is it's one thing to be mentally prepared for what we should do and it's another thing to actually be prepared mm -hmm. and it brings the one of the things that we know is that people are much more effective when they are competent and when they have drilled it and practiced for example the strategic stockpiles of stuff that was out there was dated outdated and elastic didn't work anymore. Well, if elastic isn't working in some of these stockpiled uh, supplies, federal supplies, it isn't worth it. it didn't, you can't even use them. Uh, whether they're outdated or not, if they don't work, they don't work. So this lack of cohesive federal oversight and distribution was a continuous hampering, but um, there was, uh, people were mentally prepared, but not necessarily physically prepared with the things that were necessary early on. It was about the time that you know, we had our, our first like major crisis wave of, of cases and deaths in, around mid-April that it felt like we started to see this shift away from getting as much information out to the public as possible to kind of misinformation and disinformation taking over the, the conversation. And, and now you have to combat that as well as the virus. And you know, for me, it seemed like the turning point may have been when the, the governor issued her her order to stay home from church during Easter. 
Uh, and I, I just wonder from your perspective, was was that the turning point? Were there other moments that, that kind of accelerated this? I think the school closure, and again, I'd have to go back to a calendar and say, when did everything happen and in what order? Uh, one of our guiding principles was always, let's keep kids safe and let's keep them in school if we can. Mm -hmm. But remember, we didn't know what we could do. The, but we knew that congregate settings were bad. And I don't, it could be congregate setting at a football game or a school or a church pew. And I remember thinking very deliberately, once you, once you start talking that way about churches, it touches a certain nerve with people. And I think what that did is started this whole con discussion about constitutional rights to uh, worship. Mm -hmm. And of course, my thought of it was you can, and a lot of places went right to virtual worshiping and did really well with it. And matter of fact, some of them still have that as a, many of the churches, for example, still have that as an option for people that want to stay home, should stay home, could stay home. Um, but I think it was a watershed moment that, and it, it, it's too bad because it wasn't, there, it wasn't, it shouldn't have ever been perceived as there's nothing special about worshiping or there's nothing special about churches. The message, for me anyway, was, was always a congregate setting is a place where there's going to be spreader events. It could be at funerals in, and in funeral homes. Congregate settings were bad. And you know what? They're still bad. I think, too, it's, it's worth noting that I think a lot of faith leaders understood this and, and were on board with it. It felt like there was maybe a, an outspoken minority who were, who were very upset about this. And well, then, and to that point, I think it was this kind of test of faith question. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's a difference between saying a test of faith versus a test of fate. Uh, I mean, you can worship um, uh, in person or virtually. and. I won't weigh in on that. I mean, I know people have a lot of uh, emotion about that, but congregate settings are bad. Yeah. And we know a lot of the, the outbreaks now that, that have been documented over the past couple of years have been attributed to some of these faith-based gatherings. Yes. You know, we, to me, there's, I think the two things at play here were misinformation, where we have a lot of people who are not particularly discerning about where they get their information from, uh, and I, I don't necessarily fault them for that, but there are also people who, when I, when I think about disinformation, people who prey on these people who are intentionally misleading them. Uh, and those were the, the instances where I always tried to, you know, focus some of my harshest writing and reporting on was who is telling lies in the public sphere for personal gain or political gain. and. A byproduct of this, of course, was a lot of things that are just being made up and sometimes to silly effect. We have a an elevator operator in our building where I work who believes still that milk is a cure-all for COVID and uh, and other things. You know, he, he tells us he drinks at least a gallon of milk a day, which I find kind of difficult to do. Uh, I would believe, but you know, he remains convinced this is why he never got COVID. I wonder what what were some of the the most outrageous. Uh, things that, that you notice that people were, were saying or questioning about the virus? Yeah, uh, good question. <clears throat> well, back to my lines of effort. One of our lines of effort was uh, going by phone to France and Italy and saying, do we need to buy azithromycin or do we need to buy hydroxychloroquine, which were considered by some of the people in this country to be novel approaches to treating it. What we found out in talking to, because you know Italy and France 
got lots of cases far before we did in our country. And they said, don't do it. Because see, and it's important to remember, we didn't have any financial resources coming in the door mm -hmm. at this point in time. So hydroxychloroquine, which is a drug to treat malaria, and azithromycin, which is uh, like ZPAC, uh, it's antibacterial, um, they were selling at the top of the market. We could have spent millions of dollars, not that we had it, but we could have spent millions of dollars at the top of the market. So we had to combat, I said, no, we're not gonna do it. So we didn't purchase it. And uh, subsequently, research has shown time and again, much like with ivermectin, that it's not effective for treating COVID. So one is counter-messaging and feeling the need to uh, not fight with people, uh, but rather to counter-message and hopefully convince people of what the science shows. But through this all, and it started very strongly in the Trump administration, the anti-science movement with Deborah Burks, Anthony Fauci, and other, uh, even the Surgeon General, uh, were sidelined. And uh, so that discredited uh, science. And then one of the things that I still think is profoundly affected this whole course, and I'll go back all the way to 9-11 of 01, I've not seen in, the, in my lifetime in this country where there was such a huge thirst for information. And if you recall, everybody wanted to know one day to the next, what are we learning, what do we know? What are we learning, what do we know? And uh, I've never seen anything like that until we've come to COVID-19. And that's why I think a, a rhythm of getting that information out so as to avoid having a void that is filled by garbage information. Because, and also a profound difference between 9-11 of 01 and, and now the present time is of course social media, which allows for the easy and quite honestly, intellectually lazy mm -hmm. uh, gathering of information. We do know, and social psychology research tells us that people will go out and read information judging from the headlines that already agrees what their opinions are mm -hmm. and not wanting to have what I refer to as the joyful noise of dissent. I like it to be messy. I like us to have arguments about what does the data show? What is the evidence? What should we be doing? And I can t guarantee you um, that when I was at KDHE, my team knew that they could say, Doc, stand down, let's talk about this because I'm not sure you're reaching the right conclusion. And I would say, okay, let's back off, let's, let's talk through it, let's get the evidence, let's understand. Because otherwise you go down uh, the wrong pathway. And that doesn't do anybody any good. So I, I like having those rousting discussions with an open mind. And that's the problem with this disinformation is that people that are spouting that have, a, I think, some other reasons uh, to be doing it, and they are not at all open-minded. I can think of a particular example where the science, the data was very clear in showing that the counties where there was a mask mandate had benefited from that mask mandate. The counties where there was not one, uh, the, the COVID situation had, had worsened. And uh, this was basically dismissed out of hand because of the use of a dual axis in a chart, basically. Right. A graph. Um, the way it was presented on the chart, people thought it was visually misleading. Some people did, and they used that as a way to to discredit all of the science behind it, mm -hmm. uh, which just you know had no had no basis in in reality. We, you know, later on, uh, you know, people in your agency, people at the CDC, others all came together for a more conclusive report that that showed this once again that the data was very clear, the science is very clear, mask mandates work. Uh, but if you were to ask, I think, somebody in the general public about this now, they would still say, oh, yeah, that, that was when they made up the chart. 
Uh, and that, I just imagine that has to be very frustrating to have yeah. so much work dismissed that easily. Yeah, it was really frustrating. And uh, it was a lesson learned uh, that, you know, some people learn audibly by hearing things. Some people uh, look and want the evidence displayed in front of them. The graph was not ever meant to be misleading. It was absolutely accurate. Uh, but it was not understood by some, and some didn't want to understand it and wanted to discredit it, so they right. did. But yeah, it was uh, not, certainly not any deliberate attempt to mislead. Um, and some people just don't look at graphs and understand what they mean. So lesson learned, move on, you know. But you're right, it's still kind of lingered out there. I think it's maybe not surprising that there was so much misinformation and disinformation in this, but it, I've been surprised by how angry and, and, and furious and, and divisive that some of this has has become. Um, and I, I like to use uh, Justin Spees as an example of this. He's a, a, a guy who, in Lawrence, he's, since the start of the school year, uh, has been protesting uh, the, the mask mandate there. He believes that masks <clears throat> are child abuse. And he and I had exchanged some emails about this. I think he wanted his voice to be heard more in news coverage. and. You know, at one point he had emailed me to say, you know, he was upset about being thrown out of a school meeting for not wearing a mask. He, you know, sent me a, a video as part of that discussion showing a, a toddler who was crying because his mom had made him put a mask on. And, you know, I, I don't have kids myself. I have to believe that maybe this is the one and only time a child has ever cried, um, apparently. But when I, you know, at one point in our discussion, I just asked if the video of the crying toddler was supposed to be a dramatic reenactment of his behavior at the school board meeting. <laughs> and the short answer was no. Um, but there's some profanity laced in there as well. A couple days later, he appears before this committee at the state house that's preparing for the special session bill. And, uh, you know, he's giving a scorched earth speech about the need to bully certain people out of your lives. And then he stops and says, uh, and by the way, uh, Sherman Smith, the editor of the Kansas Reflector, can go f himself. Uh, and he calls me some names, uh, says I'm a snarky motherfucker. And that gets a lot of attention. Um, you know, my friends and family have had a lot of fun with this. My wife, I think, is probably no, no fewer than 50 times now has said to me, you know, this is why people say you're, you're so snarky. Um, <laughs> my mother's ordered a face mask for me that says snarky MF across it, and uh, one that says proud wife of a snarky MF for, for her. <laughs> so we've had a lot of fun with this, but you know, a few days after that, he's arrested in Lawrence for uh, outside of a vaccine clinic. He's accused of trying to beat people with the, the signpost uh, that he was holding for trying to get their kids vaccinated. And so there's, there's a lot of anger there and he's charged with some felonies now. And you know, what he said about me is, is actually nothing compared to the, the very real abuse that, that other people have seen throughout this pandemic. And I think about the public health officers who are out there uh, and I think yourself included who have received death threats, who have just received threats of, of violence or big threats, the, the constant harassment We've seen public health officials go before school boards where they're being yelled at, uh, yelled at in parking lots. A lot of them have quit or been fired, uh, frankly, for trying to just trying to keep the public safe. Yeah, it's, it's it's all that. Well, just think of that all that material about you, Sherman. It'll have you something that uh, you can put on your Christmas card this year and as a season that's, of forgiveness. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> people will have a reason to remember me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
even if not by name, you're by title. Yeah, it, this has been, uh, all joking aside, has been really tough. We've lost hundreds of public health professionals, both uh, county administrators, county health officers, state health officials, uh, people in the federal government. And uh, it's partly the rhythm and the, how exhausting it is. I, I, you know, when I think back and, you know, I've been, um, I quote unquote stepped down on the 18th and I really haven't taken a breath since uh, I deployed in 2017 because I came right back, uh, Governor-elect Kelly then, I started working with her, delighted to become the secretary. After all, it's not like we're going to have a pandemic or anything. Uh, and then that showed up and it's been a, it, the battle rhythm has just been of a pace that is unimaginable by uh, the general public, I think. And uh, to work, you know, most people don't like to work seven days, try working 700 straight days. Hmm. And that, that alone will grind on a person. Um, so there's lots of reasons that people, and that, and that didn't even address the issue with the caregiving community itself, whether it's in nursing homes and especially in hospitals. So um, I just think that we uh, collectively as a populace need to look at ourselves and say, what is it that I can do to help the people that are on the front lines with this, whether it's public health officials or healthcare? Because this, uh, an idea of what is important to me as an individual, what is my right, what is my constitutional right, and juxtapose that to what do I need to do to help protect my fellow man. Um, and we seem to be swinging so much toward the individual rights that I think we've kind of lost the collective um, um, protection um, obligation that really we have for each other. I know that sounds kind of warm and fuzzy, but we're I, in this together. <laughs> I think about this a lot too, that I, you know, I, I like to think that when I grew up in Kansas, the, the prevailing sentiment was that we put our community first. And there are times now it feels like the, the prevailing sentiment is the individual right is more important than the community good. And I just wonder, is this, is this really who we are right now? Well, I think it is who we are right now, at least with, I don't know, 48% of the population or some number. You know, there's been studies on this. One was post, uh, published in Nature, even probably eight or ten, the, the, mag the journal Nature, probably eight or ten months ago now, and they looked at countries that seemed to have stemmed the tide of this earlier on, and there were two things that consistently came to the top. One was strong federal oversight and involvement to provide guidance and assistance to the localities, and then the second one was the co belief in that the collective good is needs to be attended to, not just our individual rights. Those two things were shown to have profound influence in Asia and in Europe, et cetera. And I think that, you know, America, the United States, uh, you know, is a very individually, individualistic oriented nation. You know, square jaw into the North wind, I'm John Wayne, I can do what I want to do, and uh, you can't stop me. Um, and I think that works pretty well until it doesn't work anymore. And th that, that individual or blind, just blinded individualism does not really work well when it comes to a pandemic. We've seen it play out. Mm -hmm. We made a, a reference a couple minutes ago to, uh, I guess, stepping down, as we call it. I think we know now that, that you were forced out. In, in July of this year, as we saw these cases of the Delta variant really uh, increasing exponentially across the state. I remember thinking how strange it is that state government officials seem to be so much quieter now, even though the numbers were more severe than we'd seen in the first year of the, the pandemic. 
And it was around that time that I came to understand that there had been some disagreements between you and the, the governor's office about messaging and that maybe there's some interest in in moving on. We know now from from my earlier reporting on this that there are emails where you were saying basically to the governor's office in early June that we need to get ahead of things. We have to be able to inform the public before inaccurate information takes over and we need to be more proactive and the response at least as I interpret it from the governor's office, was to kind of silence you. And this is right on the verge of Delta entering the state. I just wonder, you know, what was going through through your mind as this was happening, as you saw Delta coming in, and this time there are no news conferences. Uh, very rarely it seemed news releases or much information about what to do about it. Yeah, and you know, I've never talked to the governor about this directly. I've worked with her staff. Uh, and. We did have conflict or disagreement, um, and even before July, um, March, April, May timeframe, um, just an overall communication strategy. And I much more, and you heard me address this earlier, about uh, transparency, and then we'll tell you what we know today, and if it's not the right, then we'll correct it tomorrow, or if there's new information, we'll correct it tomorrow. Uh, the governor uh, staff wanted to have, a, I think, uh, a tighter, um, more scripted message than that, and they did not see me as the one necessarily that would be the likely candidate to do that. So I did get sidelined from a communication perspective. I thought we'd work through it, to be real honest with you. Matter of fact, on the week that I was terminated, on that Monday, I did four different interviews, one on the radio and three television interviews. Hmm. So I was caught off guard by this. Um, I don't get me wrong. I was very. I'm honored to have been in the Kelly administration. Uh, it, it'll just short of three years and through a difficult pandemic. Uh, I thought we were having, much like families or marital couples or work colleagues have their squabbles. I thought we'd work through that. And uh, and again, the joyful noise of disagreement. You come out of the other end of it with a better work product. Um, the the governor's uh, or the governor's staff uh, felt differently. So that's how I'm to where I am today. As you think about all of this, is there a way that you would like to be remembered or things that you would like to be remembered for? Um, I think a couple things. Uh, one is for being uh, on top of this early on uh, when there was a lot of other states that were saying, oh, this is a nothing burger. It's, gotten a, it's not going to be a big deal. Um, and we had um, not a lot of raw material to work with. We didn't have PPE, testing equipment. Didn't Early on, of course, didn't have any uh, vaccines and no therapeutics. Um, but we had just ingenuity and creativity and novel approaches to do the best we could. And not even good, complete information. So one, I'd like to be remembered as somebody that jumped on this. A second, as a guy we could trust uh, to deliver good quality information. Uh, one whose heart's in the right place and one who's willing to give more than a pound of flesh for the people in the state of Kansas and for my co-workers. One of the biggest challenges was how do you keep uh, the troops all lined up and, and feeling rewarded. Keep in mind, no pay increases for state employees for two years. All the while, inflation's going up and costs are going up. So, and people are working their tail off. You can only work 70 hours a week for so many uh, weeks before you're saying, is this really worth it, especially when I haven't seen a pay increase in two years. Hmm. Uh, and they were already lagging at that time. So I think uh, I'm really pleased for having kept the, uh, the KDHE team, 
uh, well engaged and for our tight working together with the folks in the Division of Emergency Management. Now that you have the freedom to say anything you want about the virus and the pandemic, where, where are we at with COVID-19? What, what do you think will happen from here on? Well, it's going to get worse. Um, and whether it's Omicron or and its transmissibility, there's a lot of things we don't know about that particular variant. There will be other variants. There's been 5.6 million variants already, 26 uh, of significant concern, uh, and there'll be a lot more. So I said last summer, I said, welcome to halftime. Uh, I don't like sports analogies very much, uh, but every now and again, I fall to them. And I said, when the cases were coming down nicely in summertime, I said, welcome to halftime, go out and get your popcorn, go out and get your cold drink and, and come on back because in the fall and winter, we're gonna start the third quarter. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of uh, a few minutes into the third quarter of this pandemic and uh, we, it's gonna be a struggle through the, through the remainder of the fall and into the winter. Have you thought about what's next for you? Well, it ain't retirement, I can assure you that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm probably going to retire from the Army at the, uh, at the end of September in next year, 2022. So I went into the Air Force 47 years ago, had uh, got out in 91 after Desert Storm, had an interval of time as a civilian, and then came back into the Army at the age of 61, and I'm still in. But I think the number of age waivers I've had that will allow me to stay in will uh, reach its natural conclusion next year. So I'll retire as an Army Colonel. You're, um, you're 69 now, yes. you'll be mm -hmm. 70 then. Yeah. yeah, there's not many 70 year olds still on active service in the Army. Um, the, um, but I have way too much energy uh, and I have a lot of enthusiasm for this pandemic because I'm pretty, uh, we need all hands on deck to figure this out. I will, I will work towards fighting this pandemic and I will find a setting to do that in. Very good. Thank you for, for talking about this with me this morning and best of luck to you. Thank you, Sherman. It's always good to see you.